If your child is facing a life-saving liver transplant, please reach out to the Children's Organ Transplant Association, or CODA. The CODA crew are looking forward to learning more about your family's biliary atresia journey. CODA works with families to lessen the financial burden of a life-saving transplant, and support is provided at absolutely no cost. Please call CODA today at 1-800-366-2682 or go to coda.org forward slash get started to learn more about how they can help. Welcome to another episode of Bear It All, where we discuss everything related to the biliary atresia journey. I'm Jen, and today we have Jasmine Hollingsworth, founder and executive director of Liver Mamas. She will be discussing with us about the trauma and anxiety individuals and families go through during the biliary atresia and transplant journey, and what kind of effects that can have on us. So welcome, Jasmine, and please tell us a little bit about yourself. I am, as you said, the founder and executive director of Liver Mamas and Families. I'm also mom of three children, my oldest of whom is a liver transplant patient. She's 14 now, but she would had her liver transplant at four months old, and she did have biliary atresia. So that was kind of the inspiration for Liver Mamas and Families. She has biliary atresia. She's 14 years old. She's transplanted. She's kind of on the other side of things. Tell me a little bit about Liver Mamas, how it came about a little bit more in depth. And what were some of the hopes and dreams of the organization you really wanted to see happen for the liver and the transplant community? So Liver Mamas originally started as a Facebook group that I created to keep in touch with other liver moms that I had met through the hospital. It began growing unexpectedly and very quickly. And simultaneously, my husband and I were originally from Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, we don't live there now. <laughs> we, we didn't at the time of the transplant. We had been going back to Cincinnati for the holidays. And every time we went, my daughter would get sick because she is immune suppressed. And so we decided not to go back for the holidays, which left us, well, what do we do? So we decided to take Christmas dinner and gifts to Georgetown Hospital. It's a university hospital. So all the services shut down over the Christmas holiday, over the winter holiday. And so we decided to kind of offset that. We knew how horrible it was or how difficult it was to be stuck in the hospital over the holidays, especially not being able to get out and shop for your child. We started doing that annually uh, and, and with some other liver moms and uh, liver families that started joining us. And as the support group grew on the other side of things, I began to get requests. You know, somebody would need gas money to get to the hospital or somebody would need something that would require resources on my part. And I very quickly realized mm -hmm. that these needs needed to be filled, but that I wasn't able to accommodate them by myself. So that was where liver mamas and families as a charity started. From there, it just sort of took on a life of its own. It grew organically into what it is today. And I, I like to say, you know, I, I didn't really have an, uh, an idea, a five-year plan or a structure like most, most businesses or organizations do. Um, I sort of, you know, allowed it to grow and I sort of pruned it and trimmed it and nurtured it and let it do its thing. And so now we service four pediatric transplant hospitals with our holiday drive. We call it the Jingle Ball Drive. We also do year-round care packages, and we have a ton of resources on our website, one of which is most near and dear to my heart is our mental health resource, because that is another side of biliary atresia and liver transplant and just pediatric chronic illness that I think that isn't spoken enough about. You bring up in this journey of creating liver mamas, you bring up a very valid observation is noticing families don't have time to go shopping while it's during the holiday because they're impatient 
or they need coffee, they need food, they need dinner, you know, they're tired of eating out of a cereal box because that's all that's available. In our topic today about trauma and stress and anxiety on the families, that adds to it. And I can only imagine, it's like the cherry on top of a very bad Sunday, so to speak. <laughs> um, <laughs> no one wants that Sunday. Um, but <laughs> I mean, it does, it speaks to when you're already going through trying to take care of a, a sick child child. You have all these other things around you that you can't control. It's an amazing thing that what you have done with liver mamas to do that for patients and families. Thank you. Switching from liver mamas, you also are a trauma-informed yoga instructor. Yes. And I think this is very important. Not a lot of people know that that's out there. I know I didn't. Mm -hmm. And so tell us a little bit about what that means and how have you been helping the liver community with that? Right. Um, so a trauma-informed yoga instructor is a yoga instructor that is trained to one, in a regular class setting, be sensitive to potential trauma, right? You never know who's walking in the door and coming into the classroom with trauma. Pretty much everybody has some kind of trauma, right. whether it's chronic or acute. So just being sensitive to the fact that, you know, there may be people in your classroom that are sensitive to trauma and trying to make sure that you use language with awareness and mindfulness to that. You're aware of, you know, touch, right? A lot of times in yoga classes, mm -hmm. yoga instructors will come around and give adjustments and just being more mindful in that, making sure you ask permission, uh, which we should be doing in all yoga classes, regardless of whether trauma-informed or not. But in a setting with more specific demographic, I do teach specific trauma-informed classes. I have private clients. It's really about Trauma is a nervous system reaction. So you have your sympathetic nervous system and your parasympathetic nervous system. And your sympathetic nervous system is responsible for your fight or flight response, your fight, flight, or freeze, I should say. And then your parasympathetic is sort of your, your rest and digest response. Um, and so what I do in specific trauma-informed classes or with specific trauma-informed clients is we work through the nervous system. We, we generally shift between dynamic movement and more restorative poses. Um, so more stillness. And we do sort of a zigzag pattern. So a typical yoga class goes from like a warm up and you build up to a peak and then you come down to a cool down. So sort of a bell curve. And then the trauma-informed is a zigzag. So it's a little different. But what that's meant to do is to excite the sympathetic nervous system. And we're not looking, you know, we're always mindful. We are not trying to trigger, but we're trying to build tolerance to sympathetic nervous system activation. So you might feel, you know, a lot of intensity in your body. And a lot of times mm -hmm. trauma patients tend to dissociate from their bodies especially when they're feeling strong sensation, they tend to detach from that. So dropping you into your body and noticing that intensity, noticing that sensation and trying to build that tolerance and then teaching skills to resource into the parasympathetic nervous system so that people can self-regulate. And it really helps within in trauma survivors. They a lot of times have problems um, with the executive functioning piece, that, that logic and reasoning, because a lot of times they get stuck in that fight or flight response, right? We're not trying to solve math equations <laughs> or complex puzzles when we're in fight or flight. So what it does is it really drops you back into that and allows you to access that executive mm -hmm. functioning piece and, and work through like, is this an actual threat or is this just something I'm perceiving as a threat? Depending on the age group, children who have trauma and I, you know, I've worked with my own child my own children, my son also has autism. So I actually work a lot with him using these practices, but I also teach to disabled children and children with behavioral issues and neurodiversity specifically. Um, I have private clients and children's classes that I work with that. And I also teach adults privately and in group classes with that as well. I was thinking with the whole fight or flight as patients, as our kids, as they get older through their entire journey, as medical kids, as we like to say, we're so focused on our children as caregivers. You know, we see them go through this entire journey of being sick and being in and out of the hospital a lot, getting poked, prodded, procedure after procedure. 
it, with BA kids, we all know, then finally it's a transplant at some point and they're going through their in- internal trauma. And then as caregivers, we're going through our trauma. It's, it's like two trains kind of going down on two separate tracks, but going down the same lane. And as a caregiver, we kind of just push it down deep because we have to be strong for our children. I mean, to this day, if I smell hospital soap, it brings me back to, to <laughs> all those, <laughs> to all those days, right. Yes. Um, of being impatient. So how as a community, how can we help with the trauma and the PTSD? And, you know, we want to help ourselves as caregivers. We want to help our children go through this as well. What can we do to help both collectively? Right. So I think that there is a a multifaceted approach that needs to happen. And I think that organizations like ours, first and foremost, we have the ability to reach out and raise awareness in our communities to make sure that families with medical kids, and specifically in our community, children who are going through this uh, lifelong chronic life-threatening illness, you know, make sure that they're aware that, you know, this is traumatic, right? A lot of people think of trauma being something extremely obvious and intense and acute, like being in a, you know, a war zone, like being a war veteran um, or being in some kind of major accident. And I think a lot of people aren't aware that going through this type of experience with your child is not only traumatic to your child and it doesn't matter what age, right? Because even as an infant, the nervous system is it's very early in its development. And you know, those, those experiences are going to leave that mark on the child's nervous system. Also, one of the causes of trauma is witnessing someone close to you suffer or have a near death experience. And, you know, when your child needs a transplant, that's a near death experience, you know, and that's your baby that you're going through that with. That is extremely traumatic. So raising awareness, that's trauma. Number one, number two, here are some symptoms of trauma, right? Because a lot of people don't realize, you know, that, um, you know, having short fuse you know, being angry all the time, being irritable, or on the opposite end of the spectrum, being depressed, having a lack of motivation. You know, I personally came from a place of, um, you know, where, where I went through that. I had PTSD. I, I do have PTSD, but I had a more acute phase where I didn't recognize what was going on. I didn't realize my lack of motivation was depression. I was still happy. Sometimes I enjoyed my children. I still laughed. I was very irritable and impatient <laughs> and I didn't understand why. And I didn't understand why as prior to, I was like, well, maybe that's just who I am as a mom. I've always been patient <laughs> the rest of my life, but you know, and it turned out that these were symptoms of PTSD that I was having. And I didn't recognize that because nobody said anything. So I think organizations like ours raising awareness of that would be great on the opposite side, we need medical professionals to not only be aware of it themselves, but we need them to make sure that they're informing families that this could happen. At social worker evaluations, we all go through those with our children when we have our clinics at least once a year, a social worker pops in to say hi and ask about, you know, are they eating well? They need to say, hey, be aware that there's this potential. You've been through a traumatic experience, not just your child, but you as well. Here's some symptoms to watch out for. And oh, by the way, here's a list of resources for that. Doctors need to be aware of it. In fact, I've spoken many times. Um, I actually did did a, um, a lecture at Johns Hopkins to med students to inform them, first of all, about trauma-informed practices. And second, like, hey, be careful with your languaging. There are things when, you know, when I was going through transplant with my daughter, I had a, a resident come up and be like, wow, you know, if they hadn't done that when they did, she would have been a goner. Like, you don't oh. say like that to parents, you know, because they're already like, oh my gosh. And then you say something like that, but that's not something that they're taught in med school. So their trauma-informed practices and awareness need to come into the medical spaces and be communicated to the families. So I think that two-pronged approach is very important because, you know, there are people that are going to pick that up and listen to their doctors, but there are also people in our communities and these support groups where, you know, it's coming up all the time in liver mamas right now. So. There's a couple of things that I love that you mentioned. 
how children, even young children, infants, newborns experiencing trauma, that's something with me. And, you know, we're five years post-transplant. That's something that I'm now seeing in my child in terms of the trauma that he was experiencing back then. He's delayed from a communication standpoint. So it's not something that I can go ahead and talk with him about now in depth. You know, obviously there's still this like basis of communication that we can have. I love that you pointed that out because I show him pictures of him as a baby with like an NG tube, or if it was post-transplant, post-Kasai, something like that. And he'll just start crying. And Mm -hmm. he obviously doesn't, from a memory standpoint, remember that stuff, but obviously there's something in his body that remembers that trauma, but no one has ever mentioned that to me. That's just something that me as a mother and knowing my child have just raised my hand and been like, Um, excuse me, (laughs) that's not normal. (laughs) Like, you know, like most kids love seeing baby versions of themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. So I love that you called that out because I think that that really is missing from this space in the medical perspective. The next thing that you mentioned was, you know, with the parents not understanding or using that language that this is something that's very real and very common amongst the parents who go through this journey that we go through. So my next question that piggybacks on that is, you know, you mentioned that you had spoken with the, was it residents or med students at Johns Hopkins? Have you heard, and I guess this is a question for Jen too, Are there any other programs out there right now that are talking about programs to talk to parents about this? Are there programs that they're rolling out to talk to parents? Because I agree, I think right now, where we are from a medical standpoint within the U.S., we're treating a symptom. Now we're noticing that all these parents are experiencing all these things. Mm -hmm. We're identifying it. Whereas we should be treating the root cause. Like, let's start having these conversations and identifying these things when they happen. It's like every other thing. Let's start taking a preventative approach, a proactive approach. What else is out there? Do we know about any other things that are out there right now? You bring up a good point because I remember one of Nathan's doctors, he did say, you know, we were, we were in clinic and he was, you know, observing him and we were trying to kind of go through a diagnosis and him explaining things to me a little bit better. And he looked at me and he said, you know, mom, this is all going to catch up to him at some point. And I need you to get ready for that. That was based off of him observing my son's behavior in the clinic room. And by George, he was right. Cause now we have anxiety as a diagnosis. We have PTSD, we have ADHD, we have MDD. So all of these things are starting to come out at, you know, what, seven, eight years later, after he's gone through how many medical traumas, that is something we, we need to talk about more in, well, in this I guess community. When the doctor said that, I mean, was there any follow-up like, okay, no. So what do I do about that? <laughs> so no. to answer your question, Jordan, there is an organization. I don't know how widespread it is, but it's actually one of the um, citations and I'm looking for it right now on our mental health resource on our website. Um, And it was recommended by my daughter's psychologist who helped co-write and edit that resource. Looking for it, but I have it like all lumped together. So (laughs) I apologize to any organizations out there if I misspeak this, but I believe it's the Children's Trauma Institute. As far as I know, I mean, it's not something that's so widespread. I mean, we have been patients at three different pediatric liver transplant hospitals, Georgetown, uh, Cincinnati Children's and Johns Hopkins. And none of that has been really something that was raised, you know, really made aware or recommended at that time. So I don't think it's something that's commonly spoken about in med school. Which again is like crazy to me because you think of, I guess, is it just because of everything's still so objective where they're just looking and, and not that I'm looking to place blame, I'm just more trying to understand. It's it just inherently, if you're constantly exposed to a trauma, I feel like inherently people are going to be like, are you okay? Like, do we need to do that? I mean, mm-hmm. which, we're kind of, which we've kind of experienced, I guess I don't, I, I hate to use the phrase made more popular. Practice. 
Yeah, I think it's beyond their scope of practice. It's not something all of us have had to go through in college, like basic psychology courses, like psychology 101, or maybe human growth and development. Um, But for most degrees, like that's it, right? Even, Even a med degree, you don't have to delve deep into psychology. And I think that there's a larger systemic issue at work here as well. I mean, if you look at the way that our country stigmatizes mental health and mental health care, you know, I think that that is a large part of the issue that's playing into this. But I think primarily from a a medical perspective, that's not their field of expertise. So it's not something that's in the forefront. They're treating the medical condition and not really considering the psychological, you know, after effects. Everybody has their subspecialty, right? That's their niche. Some look at it from a holistic standpoint. Some don't. Really depends on how their day's going, probably, how busy clinics are or, or things of that nature. But I do feel like since COVID too, it is a discussion that is happening more, thankfully, as far as mental health and chronic illness and disease and and liver disease and transplant, I think as advocates and as parents of children who have gone through this incredible trauma, who are going to continue to be part of the medical world, we just continue to keep pushing the envelope and being that squeaky wheel to drive more conversations about that. I think that is really important, but I think we also have to consider the fact that, you know, Jen, I know you personally and and Jordan, I know you also, and I think that we're just kind of born advocates. If it wasn't for our children, we'd probably be advocating for something else, you know, always looking for a cause. And we have that mindset not that everybody else doesn't advocate. We're practiced, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And not everybody has the resources or the the practice and the understanding of of how to go about that. I mean, I remember when we were first kind of dumped into that, like, and, and you are all of a sudden the earth is yanked out from underneath your feet and you're told that your child is dying, <laughs> you know, which that in and of itself is one of the most traumatic experiences that I have had in my life. Oh, by the way, <laughs> we're not sure if she's going to make it. Being caught up in that and in you're automatically as a parent, as a caregiver launched into fight or flight in that moment. So you're not really connecting to, again, that executive functioning piece where you're trying to solve those problems. So when you know, you've got two sides, you know, you're not really able to connect to the executive functioning piece and solve those complex problems to advocate for your child's care in some cases um, because of the mental state that you're in. And then the other part of it is, when we got dumped into this, we didn't know anything about it. We didn't know what to advocate for. We didn't know, you know, how many times a uh, pick line was supposed to be swabbed with an alcohol pad, things like that. We didn't know that we could advocate for speech therapy and occupational therapy when my daughter was having a, a oral aversion because she'd had an NG tube or a Broviac line for so long. So these are things that there are patient advocates at hospitals. Some hospitals are much better at connecting the patients and the caregivers to them than others. Again, and and Jen, you and I have talked about this, having resources out there to help guide caregivers and families in advocating for their children. That toolkit that you've talked about is so important because a lot of people don't really know where to begin. And even if they knew what to advocate for, they're struggling to be able to solve those problems because of the state of mind that they're in at that time. I love that you mentioned that as you were talking, my, the wheels were turning. And the thing that I kept going back to is, okay, so you're in this fight and flight mode, right? Let's say it's a newly diagnosis. Let's say it's, you know, transplant, post-transplant hospital admission, whatever the trigger may be. And I'm saying this with the disclaimer that, you know, none of us are therapists or anything like that, but what would be a suggestion in your experience? And maybe this is going to be touching into the trauma-informed yoga. What do you think would be your advice in terms of reaching out to someone? We know that someone, let's say in the liver community and social media, there have been a couple of kids who were just recently transplanted. So it's like, as we're talking to these parents and they're probably numb, like what would be something to go ahead and potentially like say to them or to say to an individual to be like, okay, like this is happening right now. You're probably numb. Like here are the things that you need to start thinking about. What would you suggest from your experience? 
When you're in that acute phase of transplant where a family has just gotten thrown into it and they are in that, in that, in a state of shock, really, it, you know, is, is what we're in when we get thrown into that and overwhelm, right? And you really can't digest information. I mean, I remember they gave us a handbook of all these things that we should and shouldn't do with liver transplant when my daughter's four months old and I'm in complete overwhelm and shock and I put it away somewhere. And then we went for our first dental appointment years later. And I didn't know we were supposed to have an antibiotic because it was in the handbook, but I didn't digest that information at the time. I think it's really difficult in that acute phase to, yes, giving those resources like a handbook is important because then I went back to it and I was able to digest it at that point. But I think that really you're dealing with almost triaging at that point. It's not as important to tell them, you got to remember this and this and this and this and look out for this and this and this and this. They're already in a state of overwhelm. What you need to do in that moment is say, look, this is traumatizing. What you are going through right now is traumatizing. And you might feel you know, anxious. You might feel exhausted. You might feel numb. You might feel like crying one day, screaming the next. Those are all normal feelings, right? I can't stress enough the importance of acknowledging the emotion and being allowed to feel it. I remember I was I was afraid to cry because, you know, there were so many families that I felt like were worse off than we were, that were going through like a worse end of the deal, right? We had the best of a bad situation is what I called it because our child was not as sick as some of them. Our child did get her transplant in time. Um, and so I felt like I wasn't entitled to feel because what we feel is grief, you know, it's grief. And I didn't feel like I was entitled to that because other people were going through worse. And it's important to communicate that, yeah, you're having feelings or maybe you're not right now and you will later. And <laughs> that's important. You're, you may not be feeling anything. That's also normal, but you will later and just acknowledge and allow that and then make sure the resources are there. And I think more than just handing them a handbook or resources in that acute phase checking back in on it from a medical standpoint, an annual basis and saying, Hey, just to revisit this resource, just remember this year, this might be around the time that your child's going to the dentist. And you might want to make sure that you've got your antibiotic on hand. Remember that, right? Or, Hey, there's these updated guidelines. They couldn't have grapefruit juice. Now they can't have pomegranate, <laughs> pomegranate right? That was something that we ran across <laughs> updated information. Cause we didn't get updates. We just had to kind of go through like knowing people who were going through it as well. There needs to be more of that from a medical community standpoint of continually updating, making their, their patients and families aware. But also with that, every single update needs to come with, hey, you might be experiencing these symptoms right now. Recognize that this might be trauma. And here's a list of resources for that. You know, call your insurance. I think it would be fantastic, necessary practice to preemptively make sure that your families are linked with clinical therapists, psychologists. I think that the children and the families should have them as part of their care team. Our care team includes social workers, dietitians, liver transplant specialists. It should include a psychologist because that's really important for the long-term successful outcomes of my child. My child has PTSD and has been going through trauma all their life, medical trauma. And you have to understand that you were talking about your child, Hudson, you know, how he reacted to seeing photos of himself, how he can't possibly remember that, right? But it's stored somewhere in his body. Yes. The body keeps the score. And that's the name of a book that is fantastic. I highly recommend reading it. It's by Bezel van der Kolk. And he was a prominent psychologist in the area of PTSD research and treatment for veterans way back in the day. And what happens with trauma is that you experience the event. And Jen, you were talking about push it down, push it down, push it down, right? You go into a freeze. You can't experience the reaction to that event. And when you think about it, our bodies haven't evolved far from hunter-gatherer days, right? So when we experience stress or we experience trauma, we experience that in our bodies as though we're being chased by, you know, uh, somebody with a spear. And what happens when you go into a fight or flight is 
you literally, your shoulders tense up because you're getting ready to like hit or run your, you know, muscles and your legs and your hips tense up, right? Your face, your vision, you know, becomes tunnel vision so that you can focus on where you're going. Your ears actually will only pick up low frequency sounds. They'll start to drown other things out, right? And when you have chronic trauma, you're kind of stuck in that state or at least in a heightened awareness where you drop into that more frequently. So the body is actually holding on to that trauma. And when you're triggered, by something that reminds the body or the mind of that initial event, that trauma is going to come up and the body's going to react as though it was in that traumatic experience, that active traumatic experience, which is where you have flashbacks and things like that. Right. So now I forget where I was headed with that (laughs) (laughs) story of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Totally derailed. It's important to recognize that is how trauma manifests in the body, right? And that's that's why trauma-informed yoga is, and it's something that I don't recommend doing on its own, especially for people with a lot of trauma, right? My private clients, children and adults, I always recommend and, and insist on, they have to have a clinical therapist or a psychologist because we're going to bring things up and work through a lot of things that come up in the physical body in trauma-informed yoga, but you need a professional clinician you can go to if that stirs up so much. I'm trained to help people resource back into parasympathetic, but to a degree, like you said, I am not, I'm not a trained psychologist. I am not a clinical therapist. And in that setting, even if I were, I'm a yoga teacher in that setting. So there needs to be a clinician on hand to be able to to deal with that in our world in the pediatric transplant world. I think that it's necessary to have proactively as a part of the team, someone more than just a social worker checking in and making sure that your kid's eating well (laughs) once a year. So that actually, I was going to tell you, like that kind of segues perfectly. So I think that you brought up great points from, you know, a support team, from a clinician standpoint, from a resource in terms of uh, yoga and being able to use things parallel that complement one another. Synergy, if you will. (laughs) Um, But another thing, and when we were talking about the consistency and checking in and feeling all that. Another thing that exists, and this isn't just in the transplant world, is our friends and our support system. So few people know how to interact or know to like, just ask the how you're feeling or how are you today? Or to let that be a safe space where you can have all those feelings. So I think there's also another aspect that is really deficient in society. And that's people not understand, not because they don't want to be a good friend. I think people don't know how to do it. Yeah. And that's the same with family. Right. And I think that that also creates this void, which doesn't help anyone going through trauma and what, whatever phase of trauma it is. I just think that that's a huge area of opportunity. I'll say the, the nice way of saying something. I think it's a great area of opportunity for us and for the medical community to, from a social and a medical perspective to work together is how can we all start coming together? Another thing I thought was really interesting and it just like immediately, you know, sparked again, one of my experiences was you're like, feel those feelings. So one day it might be, you might feel fine. The next day you might cry or you you might do that. I know that even to this day, I don't know if you guys do this is I will go ahead and, you know, I try to be pretty open about my feelings and, you know, how I'm experiencing something. I'm, I'm pretty vocal, you know, on social media. And when I talk with my friends and family, But what I find myself doing is after I will express how I'm feeling, whether it be a good day, bad day, whatever, I find myself always being like, but I'm grateful, right? (laughs) So it's like you, you have these feelings. Don't you feel like though you always have to be in the position that we are? especially being post-transplant and going through that. I feel like you can go through your feelings, you validate your feelings, and then it's the, but of course I'm grateful. Yes. Yes. But Mm -hmm. of course, of course, I'm always, I'm, I'm always going to do this. And I always feel the need to have that gratefulness in me or explain that I'm grateful um, if I'm having a bad day. And that's tough, you know, you know, um. It's it's funny you bring that up, Jordan, because Jasmine and I have had that conversation. <laughs> I don't know if she remembers, but you know, I was going through a, a, a tough time with my kiddo. It just everything was going wrong, complication after complication after complication. And I found myself doing the same thing. 
and she had told me she's like yeah but it sucks <laughs> like yeah you're right yeah. it does suck yes. can I just say that I'm just not in the mood today and I can feel and this is her saying I can feel all my feelings right now if I really <laughs> want to and I don't have to compare myself and I don't have to go through and say well it could be worse so we're in a good standpoint no what you're going through in that moment and what your child is going through in that moment is it's okay to to just say man, this is a really bad day or this just sucks, plain and simple. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's there's a few things that you both bring up in that. So first, Jordan, um, you were talking about friends and the way that you know, a lot of times close loved ones friends, family, they don't know how to react. And, and a lot of times I know, um, you know, having been through this experience and, and we've all experienced it, we lose friends and, and unfortunately sometimes yep. family yes. because they don't know how to react. It's not that they're being rude or anything. They just kind of exit out of your life because they, they don't know how to deal with it. Right. And because they don't know what to say. And what I would love to emphasize is that, and studies have shown this, one of the number one ways to mitigate the long-term effects of trauma is the support of close others. So when your child is going through something traumatic, the support that you give them, the fact that you're there allowing them to feel what they're feeling is so important. But also for us as family members, as parents, as caregivers, it is so important. I've had friends that were like, oh, you know, fuck it up. God only gives you what you can handle. You know, we've all heard that. And it's like, well, gee, oh. I, I don't know. God, I don't know if God knows me very well. <laughs> you know? my, my favorite, my favorite, everything happens for a reason. Oh, yes. Really? What reason is this? That, and that's the thing. Like, those are some of the worst things. And what it is, is it's, it's meant to make you feel better, right? First of all, but it doesn't, it has the opposite because what it does is it invalidates your feelings. And like I said, it, it's so important for you to feel what you're feeling because just like pain, right. in your, in your physical body, right. And when, when you feel difficult emotions, does that not hurt? Do you not feel physical pain from that? You do. So it's, it's like pain in the body. When you feel these difficult emotions, it's a warning sign. And the only way to get to the other side of that is to work through it. You have to sit with it. You have to experience it and you have to be allowed to experience it. And you have to have someone to sit with you in that dark place and say, yeah, this sucks. You're allowed to feel that. And that's the only way to get through it. And I don't think a lot of people realize that because the other side of that is when people go through difficult experiences, we are put on a pedestal and expected to be superhuman because what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? And it's this trope that we have, not just the United States, it's kind of permeated Western culture, right? This individualistic society that we have, you know, puts a premium on people who can overcome your know, difficult circumstances. And while that's a lovely story, um, and it's not that we can't, it really, it really doesn't, <laughs> you know, what doesn't kill you completely wrecks your nervous system, right? And you have to be able to work through that and, and not be put on a pedestal and, and be expected to just go back to normal and carry on with your life as though nothing happened, put a smile on it and go on. And people expect you to do that, which is further invalidating what you feel. And it's just the opposite of what you need. It's really hard that that's what we, as the caregivers, as the patients, that's what we need from, from our support group, from our loved ones and everything. I don't think that there's an answer for this, but I think that we need to find a way where we, the patient or the caregiver or whomever is experiencing and going through that difficulty, that trauma, the experience that they're going through to not be the teachers of that, right? Yes. That needs to not fall on their shoulders yeah. to be the person to say, here's what I need from you. This is how you can be my friend. Sometimes it has to happen. And I think that that's fine. But I think we as a society, we need to figure out a way to take that burden off of the person going through that hardship. I don't have an answer for how we can go ahead and do that, but it's me putting it out into the universe that this is something that needs to happen, right? right? And because that's also part of it too. I think that's also part of the burden that people experience and maybe don't reach out to their their loved ones because all of a sudden it becomes way more work than, right. than they wanted to. They're like, 
I, I would really like to talk to someone, but this is really hard to kind of go over the ground rules of how to talk to them. Mm-hmm. I just don't want to deal with that right now. And that yeah. sucks. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. it does. Yeah. Well, and you know, you bring up Jordan, you bring something up. How many times has someone come up to you, whether it's when you're, you were going through the BA journey, the Kasai or the transplant, how's he doing? How are you doing? What's, <laughs> you know, when they're asking these questions and you get to a point where you're just like, I, I'm fine. It's I'm fine. fine. It's fine. <laughs> Everything's fine. Um, <laughs> yes. Do, that was, that was my so Christmas t- card two years ago. Yes, <laughs> it was. And you want to share, but you get to a point, it's kind of like the same thing where, you know, resident number one comes in the room and you go over the history. Resident number yes. two comes in the room and goes over the history, you know, and at some point you get really tired of going over the history. I think we feel the same way with family and with friends is that at some point you just say, I'm fine. Yeah. And you move on. Right. Because mm-hmm. you don't want to have to explain because then once you explain something, then you have to explain something else. Then you find yourself educating them maybe on something that's going on with your child. Then you, and, and it just, it's too much. And so you just say, I'm fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm going, you can oh, go, go ahead. Jasmine. <laughs> so I just, I want to caution people to, you can tell someone you're not fine and you don't owe them an explanation. Yes. Yes. What I would tell people who are looking to support loved ones who are going through something difficult, whether it be liver transplant, biliary atresia, or anything else, just show up and be there. I, I can't tell you, and, and you, you both know what I'm talking about, what it felt like just to have, just to know there was a net of people there for support. I didn't have to talk to them and have to pour my heart out to them. I didn't need it, but knowing that people were sending good thoughts out into the universe and people were thinking of our family and thinking of our daughter and, you know, crossing their fingers and toes and, you know, hoping everything would go well, that in and of itself, just letting someone know that you are thinking about them and being there. Like if you happen to be the person that that person calls up and says, Hey, I'm having a really hard day and I just need to talk, then you just listen and you let them feel. And that's, again, you know, we have this issue. It's it's a systemic issue in our society that we feel like we have to say we're fine. We feel like we have to keep up that appearance of being fine. And the only way that we break that is by not doing it. I almost think that people want to try and fix it for you, (laughs) right? My husband's a fixer. He wants to just fix it. I think a lot of husbands are like that. I could be wrong. And so they want to fix it for you and they just don't know how. And I think sometimes the awkward silence scares them a little bit. If you were just to say, just come sit by me, let me have all my feelings. And I just want you to listen, or I just want you to sit there and we're just going to sit here and listen to the quiet and let me just feel what I want to feel. I think that, you know, as people, when we see people hurting and when we see people in pain, we want to fix them instead of doing exactly what you had just said, Jasmine. Yeah. And in the yoga community, we call that holding space. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, yeah, human, humans hate silence. It's like, they if do. you ever want to make someone uncomfortable, just be quiet for seven seconds. See if someone can go ahead and hold just silence without saying, um, like uncomfortably, you know, clearing their throat, something <laughs> for seven seconds. And that's, that's an Alanis Morissette song, right? <laughs> It is. It is. Like, here, can you handle this? And then it's silence. And then you think about about your your bills, your extra deadlines. So this is now. Isn't it ironic? (laughs) This is now uh, Bear It All, the karaoke edition. (laughs) Um, Jasmine, can I ask you a personal question? Sure. When you guys were going through transplant, how many years post-transplant are you now? Oh gosh. Um, so she's 14. 
just over 13. Okay. So 13. So social media was, was still in existence. I wouldn't say it was as prominent as it is now, but do you think like when you talked about your support group and um, you had people who were there to hold your net, did you find it harder to have those people or to communicate 13 years ago versus like social media now? And the reason I say that is because in our social media world of Liverland, if you will, and the BA community, we know what's going on with a family within 30 seconds of them posting it, right? And then we all share what's going on with that group. We all do all of that. So I was just thinking in terms of having those people who understand and that we were kind of talking about if that was more difficult to kind of find your people 13 years ago versus today. Yes, there was no liver mamas <laughs> when, when we went through it. And uh, our support, we had one family that we were actually connected with from a doctor, one of my daughter's doctors or uh, hepatologists at Georgetown who had gone through it the year before us. And, and they were a Georgetown family as well. And we're still very good friends with them. Um, we absolutely adore them, but they were, I call them our sponsors because they came in and kind of helped tell us, you know, what to expect. And they brought their daughter in and, you know, we could see that she was quote unquote healthy, you know, you know, as healthy as a transplant patient can be right. And she was walking and, and starting to talk. And, and so that was pretty much the extent of it was the other people that I met at the hospital that were going through it. And we really didn't have a whole lot of time to talk. And we were kind of all in shock at the time. The net that we experienced was more, so my space was the bigger thing when we went through it, it was more people that we didn't know, right. Our, our friends and family members were reaching out to their church groups and, and, to the people that they worked with and telling our story. And we were getting cards in the mail from people we didn't even know, just wishing us well. And, you know, I think there were over 30 people in a week, many of them we did not know who called into the hospital wanting to be my daughter's living donor, which we didn't know wasn't, you know, wasn't allowed <laughs> at the time, you know, that it had to be like a relative of some kind. There were a lot of people that were physically there, but people would bring dinner by the hospital. And that was huge. You know, you're so sick of, that was one of the reasons why we did the Christmas dinner thing, right? We're so sick of hospital food. So having someone just bring by a nice dinner was amazing. But yeah, that support from other people and other families that had gone through it in the way that we experienced that now was not there. And there were definitely people in the family and definitely close friends. Um, there was a friend that I lost touch with for a very long time. We stopped speaking to each other because she, she thought I was being a martyr and, you know, she's had her transplant. You just need to get over it. She's fine now. And it's like, no, she's not. <laughs> you know, at the time we were like in the height of PTSD and we had CMV and EBV and my, you know, PTLD and we're going through like chemotherapy drugs. And here I've got somebody telling me, it's fine. Why, why can't you balance things like everybody else? And we've since had conversations and she understands now that, that, <laughs> that it wasn't fine. I that love was that you guys have had conversations. I just love hearing that, that piece that there is since been a dialogue and an understanding, which is huge. Cause that takes openness on both ends, right. Yes. From both sides. Um, when there's something like that mm -hmm. and which is important. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I think that's rare. Actually, I think it's rare that for that to happen, but we were fortunate enough and, and now we're, we are still friends. And she actually accompanied me to the hospital to, you know, witness, you know, what we went through with, with getting blood draws, you know, which was for years and years and years, which to everybody listening out there, there is hope. My daughter did get over, like I had to literally hold her down with like some sort of jujitsu move. Um, <laughs> until she was about 12, we did go through a lot of therapy. Um, and, and then obviously the trauma informed yoga that I did with her, but she's 14 now. And she just sits in that chair and rolls up her sleeve and holds her arm out all on her own. So there is hope. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm one of those that needs, that needs to hear that, man. I end up having, we end up having to do the bear hug, hold down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But. Yeah. And I'm really lucky that she's over it because she's as big as I am literally now. And so if we had to do that, I'd be in some trouble at this point in time. <laughs> so, yeah. I love that we can have these honest conversations, totally off topic, unpopular opinion. I will say, and I will fight anyone that disagrees with me on this. <laughs> I think getting something in the mail is one of the most personal, kindest yeah. gestures that you can do. I just think the old fashioned card in the mail or something like that, regardless if you know the person, I think that's one of the kindest things that you can do. 
And I I love that. And that's something (laughs) adding to, you know, anybody listening out there, you know, maybe friends and family of people going through something, just knowing that, you know, just send a card, let somebody know that you're thinking of them. It really does have a larger impact than you'd fathom. Yeah. This conversation just goes back to understanding the different ways that you can support people going through this journey. Hopefully by us talking about this and talking like we have, hopefully that reaches people and that helps people not only, you know, maybe people going through it kind of gives them some tools to help communicate that or to help experience and I guess validate some of the things that they're feeling. But I think it also provides some talking points to that support group if they need to, or to their loved ones, if they need to have that conversation. And that's the goal that we're trying to get here in having these conversations and publishing this podcast Mm -hmm. is it's not all medical high, you know, 30,000 feet conversations. I mean, we're three very real parents that went through very real things and we feel very real feelings about it. Yes. So I just really wanted to thank you for being so open and to having these conversations and for being so honest with everything that you have gone through and your knowledge and experiencing everything that you've learned through that. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for, for having me. I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed this. Yeah, just come you know, back for karaoke. <laughs> Seriously, we can have we can have bear karaoke. On a serious <laughs> note, though, too, I would like to see um, more episodes down the road of really tackling trauma with siblings and trauma, yes. you know, trauma within the marriage and and yes. things of that nature too, because th- those are topics that we don't talk about, right? Absolutely. Like, you know, when you go like, through you know. your yeah. When you, you know, you go through, you go through something traumatic with your, with your child and, you know, people ask, well, how are you and your husband doing? Oh, we're fine. You know, there's that space again. <laughs> we're everything's fine. fine. Everything's fine. We're yeah. doing great. It does take a hit and that's okay. That has to be okay because yeah. your spouse is processing it totally different than what you are because you're two individuals. So I would love to invite you back to have more of these discussions and just bring more awareness to the surface for our listeners in this community and in this space, because I feel like it's helpful that they know while they're listening, they're not the only ones out there. You know, that's the whole point is for us to tell them you're not alone. And that's what this is. And Jordan and I, we will share our ugliest moments. We'll share our prettiest moments. We'll share our funniest moments with karaoke or whatnot. But at the <laughs> end of the day, we all just, we're all here for each other. And that, and that's the main, that's the goal. So, so Absolutely. thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you. I try to say I'm fine. I'm fine.